CT Uncorked. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On this podcast, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine. In this episode, I'm talking with Sarah Putt, an OT, friend of mine, and a fellow podcaster. Sarah is the host of the OT for Life podcast and community, owns a private practice specializing in early intervention, loves being a fieldwork educator, and she just started a recent collaboration with two other OTs to create the OT Roundtable, a new podcast with roundtable discussions about pressing topics related to OT. Today, Sarah and I are talking about cultural fluidity. So neither of us is an expert on culture and its influence on practice, but we both have experienced firsthand the positive outcomes of partnering with clients and fellow practitioners who identify differently than us. In this episode, we explore some of the challenges and the beauty of collaborating with people when there isn't a shared culture or language. We don't claim to be experts, but we do claim to be learners who are actively trying to grow in this area. We welcome your feedback and input into what we hope is an ongoing conversation. Sarah, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here, Miranda. Thanks for having me. Uh, In the intro, I bragged on you a little bit with everything that you're involved in and everything you're doing as a clinician, as an OT content creator, but um, in kind of your own words, can you give a little bit of a summary of kind of what what you do and a little introduction to who you are? Of course. So I am an occupational therapist in Southern California. I run my own private practice and I specialize in early intervention. So that's working with kids birth to three years of age within their home. And I am also the host of OT for Life, which is an OT podcast because honestly, OT is my jam. I love talking to occupational therapy practitioners, talking about all things OT. So yeah, I can pretty much talk about OT all day. <laughs> well, good, because that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and you've also got um, a new project. I do. Yes. Uh, I just joined forces with a couple of other OTs, and we started the OT Roundtable podcast. And we released our first episode this week, and it has been just an awesome experience working with them and kind of getting this thing off the ground. It's It's been really cool. And I'm looking forward to what we have in store in the future. Yeah, I'm excited. Now, um, by the time this episode goes on, it'll have been a couple of weeks since uh, since you guys went live with this. Um, was it on the 24th of March? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's pretty cool hearing a bunch of different perspectives. And you guys covered um, kind of the coronavirus current uh, kind of state state of affairs for OT and how it's influencing occupation. And it was a really interesting talk. So uh, I'll link to it, of course. Perfect. Yeah. I think we, we had this idea and we had already been working on the podcast for a while. And then when the whole virus outbreak happened, we were like, we need to talk about this from our framework because there'd been a lot of medical information and and lots of like, you need to do this or don't do this. And we wanted to really kind of unpack it from the occupational lens and from the occupational implications of how it's impacting us as providers, but also our clients, which we kind of felt like wasn't really being addressed. And 
everything's just kind of unraveling really quickly. And so I think a lot of us have just been trying to keep up with the changes, but we wanted to just like dig in and really try to just highlight some of the things that are going on in our profession. Absolutely. And I think you guys did a great job of that. So um highly recommend people uh, listen to it. And I'm excited to see what else you guys talk about around the round table. Um, and it's on YouTube and on podcast mm-hmm. players. So Oh yeah, you can listen. <laughs> yeah, I watched on YouTube. So, oh cool, fun to see you all there. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so today we're gonna talk about something a little bit different. Um, it goes kind of by many names, and so I think we're just gonna kind of talk about culture in sort of broad strokes, um, but mostly just kind of our personal experience. Uh, it's referred to a lot as a cultural, culturally competent practice, or a culturally relevant or aware. Um, practice, uh, cultural fluency. There's a lot of these words that are used. And um, since I am not an expert, um, I'm, I'm kind of feeling sort of more of this like culturally aware because I think it, in my own practice, increasing my own awareness of myself um, has really helped me support, hopefully help, you know, help me support my clients a little bit better. So that's kind of the the term that I tend to stick with. How about you? Uh, so I actually heard this a couple years ago. I was at a, it was a, a fieldwork seminar actually for fieldwork educators. And we were talking about culture and the influence of culture. And one of the presenters was actually saying cultural fluidity. And that's mm-hmm. kind of been one that stuck with me that, and, and we can kind of look at it from two different angles, like the person and their culture and how it is kind of fluid throughout their life and maybe how how their family kind of develops and if they get married or, you know, they associate with other cultures, it, it tends to move and kind of flow. But then also we can kind of think about it from a practitioner standpoint of the, the people, the clients, the patients that we're working with and how we as practitioners can kind of be fluid in trying to understand and be aware of their cultures as well. And even though we might have our own experience with culture or we have worked with other patients that have their culture doesn't mean that just because one person associates with what we think might be one means that it actually is. So it's really just trying to be kind of like fluid in that whole thing and and just kind of take it all in and, and try to understand it to the best of our ability. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to frame this conversation is that we're just trying to talk about this to the best of our ability from our perspectives. And um, we don't have perspectives other than our own that we can actually understand. So uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're headed with this conversation. And it's um, it's important to, to kind of start out with. And um, beyond that, I think it's also really helpful to position ourselves whenever I'm reading uh, qualitative research, especially. Um, I find it really helpful when the authors kind of position themselves to say, here's here's the perspective I'm coming from while working with this population, whether it's a clinical population, a particular culture. They really position themselves well. Um, it's something I really appreciate. So I thought we could do that here right now, um, just to frame our conversation a little bit more, what perspectives we can bring to this conversation. So um, do you want to kind of start introducing kind of your cultural identities right now? Yeah, sure. I would say that I am kind of within the cultural identity of being white. I'm American. I am definitely not super religious, though I am very open and I love learning about different religions. 
I, this is a term that kind of makes me laugh, but I would say that I am part of the Oregon Trail millennial generation. <laughs> because What does that mean? <laughs> so I, I like everything has kind of a, a different definition for it, but they're basically saying like late 70s to like mid 80s. Basically the people that kind of started playing that the, the Oregon oh. Trail game. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wait, what? What is going on? And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally fall right into that category. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, I guess, the older um, the older millennials, I should say. So mm-hmm. that's where it's kind of like putting us, where we're like, technically we're millennials, but we're like on the older side. So <laughs> sure. I'll you throw don't, that don't out want there. to identify as a millennial, but technically. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Oregon yeah. Trail was a great game though. Loved it. It was. It was. <laughs> and then- I remember in elementary school, there was a time period in our day where we alternated who played Oregon Trail as part of our history curriculum. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. I definitely had that too. So definitely didn't make it too far. Nope. <laughs> always died of dysentery or whatever. Yeah, always. <laughs> and then so I think good. the other thing that I, I never really thought like everyone would be like, oh, like you Californians, you, you guys have like your own culture. And I never really saw that before. But since I actually, I just got back from like traveling for about five months all across the U.S. and in Europe. And then I really started to realize, I was like, yep, there are definitely things that like West Coasters and Californians that I would put into that cultural identity bubble. <laughs> so yeah. and that would be another one that I'm kind of coming from too. <laughs> cool. It, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'm an East Coaster who just moved to California uh, within this past year. And I definitely see cultural differences. And um, they're just kind of like funny little nuanced things that I do differently um, than some of the people I work with. And it's just, yeah, you don't know. It, it's interesting, like you said, that you didn't really identify that way until you experienced other cultures. You're like, oh, I guess there is something kind of unique about us, <laughs> yeah. people in California, the West Coasters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for kind of positioning yourself and I'll do, I'll do the same thing. Um, my cultural identities that I would sort of describe myself as, as kind of right now, as you mentioned with the fluidity thing, you know, they're, they're changing, but um, I definitely identify um, strongly as um, an American. I would say my f- family, um, the most recent immigrants in my family were many generations before, so I don't really have strong cultural ties um, to my European ancestry or anything. Um, I am also white. Uh, I identify as a woman, um, heterosexual. And I'm in my 20s. I identify as a Christian. I identify as an OT, obviously. And I'm part of sort of like the, or starting to be part of sort of that academic and research culture as well. So I know I feel that on a day-to-day basis a lot as well. And like I said, I'm an East Coaster. So I'll throw that one in since you (laughs) mentioned the Californian part. (laughs) Yep. Um, I'm also one other identity that I think might be relevant to this conversation is I identify as Spanish speaking, but I do not personally have any um, Latinx or Hispanic um, heritage in my family. But growing up, I was in a Spanish speaking school where we were not allowed to speak in English. um, And all of my uh, educators were um, Hispanic or Latino, um, 
in their identity. And so I feel like I had a lot of exposure um, to some of their cultures and speaking Spanish growing up kind of just allowed me to interact a little more closely with um, other groups that maybe linguistically I would have had a barrier with. Um, so while I, I'm not Hispanic or Latina, I feel like that Spanish speaking part kind of fits into our conversation a little bit. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so that's me. <laughs> yeah, so again, we're talking today about culture and um, kind of the, the motivation behind this is that I think most of the OTs I talk to really value culture. It's part of our framework. We understand that culture impacts occupation and identity. And then I think, unfortunately, as practitioners, we sort of see some of the occupational injustices as well that can stem from people not understanding each other. And so I think we're really today want to talk about, um, yeah, kind of how we can better understand each other and be just aware of ourselves. So like we started with our positioning because I think being aware of our own culture is like a great first step to, to understanding other people's culture and how mm -hmm. it impacts their occupational identities. So in your practice, um, you know, are you encountering um, clients and families that have different culture Id cultural identities than you have? Yes. Yes, definitely on a <laughs> daily basis. Working in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, I am working with clients and families from a multitude of different backgrounds, some of which I've worked with are Hispanic, the Latinx, African-American, Asian, Middle Eastern, Russian. I, I mean, I can't even list all of them sure. out because – pretty much everybody that I'm working with is coming right. from a different culture or a multitude of different cultures too, like some, mm -hmm. uh, some blended families and all that kind of stuff. And so it's something that I am always thinking about and I'm always reflecting on how I can be better as a practitioner. I'm also a fieldwork educator, so I'm having to work with that with my students as well. And so, yeah, it, it's definitely something, always something on the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. So now, I mean, like you just said, it's on the forefront of your mind every single day. You're interacting with people that maybe identify differently. Um, I think from what you also mentioned, you know, previously to me, there's also maybe some linguistic barriers where um, you both speak different languages. And so working with families, um, also having a language barrier. Um, oh, yeah. I think specifically when we're talking about culture, I think language oftentimes can be the very first thing that can be an indicator of a difference. Mm -hmm. And that can happen before you've even met the family. So I go to call them and I can't communicate with them or we have difficulty communicating because of a language barrier. So very often that language is that very first thing that I realize, okay, how am I going to even schedule the first appointment if I can't mm -hmm. communicate? Or if, if they're not understanding me or if I'm not understanding them. So language is, is huge. And then even in the sessions, a lot of times when it comes to language, things can get lost in translation and ensuring mm -hmm. that they're understanding what it is that you're trying to communicate to them or what they're trying to communicate to you. If they're trying to ask a question and you don't understand, there's a lot of just Un unknownness that it's like, wait, is this what they're trying to tell me? Or are they asking something else? And so that can pose a lot of different mm -hmm. questions uh, working with our clients. I also should have mentioned this when I was talking about identities, but before becoming an OT, I was a medical interpreter. So the language piece is really um, an area of interest to me as well. 
-hmm. because you're right, even from that first phone call of scheduling, uh, that can be problematic. Um, somebody's trying to express, you know, why they or someone in their family needs an appointment for services, and there's just a barrier there to the person taking down notes, understanding what's what's happening. Um, just misunderstandings on both sides, and so I think as an interpreter, um, that also kind of brings a unique perspective into this as well, um, of, of like kind of what is the role of language and how can we. Um, navigate that, but also understand that it's not only language. Because I think what you're saying like, is, you know, that language is maybe the first indicator that there's going to be some uh, cultural differences, but it's not going to be the only cultural difference. So even if you have an interpreter, even if you know the other language, if you don't have the cultural context or you don't have those conversations with your clients, you're still missing a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it also kind of comes into the expectations from both the clients and us as practitioners, where the clients might have different expectations looking at us and they might put, they might try to put us into kind of this cultural box of like, based on what we look like or what we sound like or whatever. And so they'll, they're going to kind of put their own expectations on us. And then of course, we're, we're coming from our own lens. And so we might be putting different expectations on the families that may or may not actually tie in with their, their culture as well. So it's kind of this two-sided thing. And there can be a lot of things that go wrong if one or both parties aren't really trying to be aware and trying to work together. Yes, absolutely. I think that idea that it's uh, collaborative um, and that this really, it's cool. When we talk about culture, especially in the context of occupational therapy, a lot of the um, sort of qualities that make an interaction really um, fruitful when there's cultural differences are some of the same interactions that need to happen in practice in which you really strongly identify similarly as the person you're working with. Um, so for example, um, what, what I just come to think of like what we're asking in an evaluation, if there's anything culturally that we should really be mindful of, if there's anything um, about their maybe religious identity that would be important for us to consider when we're doing treatment or people's un beliefs about modesty or about, I mean, there's so many things that mm -hmm. we are already should be asking. Right. Yep. And so like we, you know, we're already establishing that open connection, even just from the first evaluation of what do we really need to know to best understand and serve you. And that collaborative nature of opening up the door to these conversations, our clients um, taking advantage of that as much as they need to, to really feel safe and comfortable. And it's like those same conversations need to happen when we're culturally different from somebody else, because regardless, their culture is likely to impact some area of occupation um, in their life or affect their goals or whether they are more sort of the goals are going to be for themselves. The goals are going to be for their families. Um, so anyway, I just kind of feel like even though it can be challenging and we can, we're can we talking about these barriers that come up, there are a lot – we can take a lot of the same approaches that we just take during our, like, quote, normal practice, whatever that means, um, <laughs> and apply them to cultural differences because we're, we're constantly working with, you know, people who are different than us. So, And I think – we as occupational therapists and occup occupational therapy providers, we are uniquely poised to address this because we are trying to get to the bottom of what somebody does is important and why it's important to them. And culture and identity and all these things that we've been talking about play right into that. And you can't just look, in it, look at a specific activity 
and kind of just say, oh, we're not going to pay attention to the culture. We're not going to pay attention to (laughs) some of these other things going on because that has a direct link to what it is that they're doing. And so, yeah, we we really have to have that framework and come from Mm -hmm. that lens of trying to understand and trying to communicate to our clients that we're here. We're not here to judge. We're here to help you. We just want to do the best for you that we possibly can and not and not really like throw in our own judgment on it. Because I think a lot of times when there mm-hmm. are cultural differences, the, the clients can start to feel judged that they're like, well, you just don't understand. You don't speak my language. Mm-hmm. You're not from my hometown. You're not like whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, I am not and I never will be, but I'm here to help. And I really want to mm-hmm. understand to get you better. Amen. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's um, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So, you know, now in your day to day, you're meeting people. Like I said before, you know, you're meeting people um, that have different identities than you. You're navigating these um, differences. Was that always the case? I mean, in your field works, did you have experiences with people from other cultures? Um, in your education, did you feel like you had training? Yeah, uh, definitely. Because I think. Most of my field works were also completed in the Los Angeles area, and just based on the the sheer number of people that we have, it definitely tends to be a a melting pot of different cultures and identities. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I have had a lot of exposure to that. I've also done a lot of volunteer work outside of the U.S., and so I've been to Peru and Ecuador, Cambodia, Honduras. And so I've had exposure outside of the U.S. as well. So I'm willing to learn and I'm I'm open to, you know, trying my best to work with cultures that even that I might not have had the opportunity to work with yet. So you've had sort of this training, you've had this experience. And like you said, it's kind of this ongoing process where at no point are we cold. That there's This is actually the reason why I don't like the term cultural competence. Mm-hmm. Competence to me sounds like you've reached some point, um, like you're taking a competency exam and like now you are officially competent. And I think that's not really possible with culture, right? Um, we're just yeah, constantly totally agree. And learning and shifting our understanding. <laughs> that's why I don't like that term. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's interesting for me. I grew up in an I love my I love the town I grew up in. I grew up in Pennsylvania in this awesome little small town, super community oriented, but it was not particularly diverse in any way. If we look at any of these kind of points of diversity, some of those identities that we talked about, like there I didn't see a ton of people different than me. Um and so in one way that was nice because I didn't learn any of these like negative stereotypes about other cultures. I just I don't know. I just feel like there wasn't really an opportunity because no one really knew anybody different than them. So then I went to college and it was awesome because I actually got to meet people different than me, but I didn't have these preconceived notions Mm -hmm. of what it meant to be blank, right? What it meant to like fill in the blank with whatever identity. I just had no idea. So I just got to make friends and that was awesome. Um, And then people started telling me more about their backgrounds and cultures. And I started to sort of understand a little bit, a little bit more, but that was really, um, eye-opening for me, just like leaving my small town, going to college in a different state, and then having fieldwork experiences um, in different settings. So I feel like for me, there's just been so much growth in the past like, eight to 10 years um, just in understanding different cultures. And um, yeah, so I think that's actually uh, one thing that I kind of wanted to mention here too, is that it's okay if you don't feel like you are 
and not you specifically, but it, you know, it's okay if listeners are not um, super comfortable uh, or don't have a lot of experience with people with other cultures. I mean, there's there's always a, a good time to start and ways we can do that. I think we've talked about multiple times already, being aware of your own cultures, positioning yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other one is like, what are you reading? What do you listen to? What do you watch? Right. And like, what are the voices that you're hearing even on podcasts on, you know, when you watch movies or TV shows, when you read books, like who are the authors Um, and do they have the same experiences as you? So I think that's actually kind of, I actually did that earlier today. I looked through my reading list. I was like, am I reading from people who have my same perspective? So anyway, I think that's like a a good step is, is starting to see what voices am I hearing and can I diversify that a little bit? Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a really great way to kind of think about that. And I'm, I'm like racking my brain now. I'm yeah. like, what, what, who, like, who am I listening to on podcasts? And I, I don't read as much as I should. I know it's on like, it's on my to-do list. I just haven't gotten to it, but podcasting. Yeah. That's definitely where I'm getting my, uh, my, my content. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's it's a good reflective activity, right? Um, mm-hmm. To kind of go through, and be like, hmm, what what is my source of information about? You know, actually, even just with this coronavirus um, situation that's unraveling in front of us, um, I was wondering kind of what news sources am I using, and not just from a political or um, kind of that standpoint, but even just. Who am I reading? So I read articles written by people who are in other countries or who are here trying to get home to other countries. Um, and that was just like a slightly different perspective, right? Some of them were still people who were like white female Americans in another country. So it wasn't like a massive departure. But um, those perspectives, I think, just really added some texture to the, this conversation about like our current crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you heard any kind of perspectives um, about that or other news stories recently from from other perspectives that you thought were kind of enlightening? I'm putting you on the spot with this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, like the, the first one that came to mind was I have two friends that they live in Venice, Italy right now, and they've been there the past mm. five, like five to six years. And yes, they're American, but they have really trying to just kind of become one with the Venetian culture as much as they possibly can. And we actually just went out to visit them in December, like early December and like walking around, they're sharing so much of what that Venetian culture is like. And so it's been really interesting to hear their perspective going through this whole outbreak uh, because they were the ones that, Initially, when I first started hearing about this, and I'll just be completely honest, and I just did a podcast episode about this mm-hmm. very early on in the beginning, I didn't think that it was a big deal. And mm-hmm. it was through, and this is kind of before it even really became a thing in the States. I sure. was hearing stuff from my friends that are in Venice, which they are in, like, they're on one of like the front lines of it happening. And they were sharing stuff with us that I was like, whoa hold Mm -hmm. up right Mm -hmm. like so then when it started to kind of trickle into the U.S. I already had this awareness of what they had been telling me and they were like they were basically trying to give people a wake-up call of like hey this is what's happening with us right now it it will happen with you guys and so that definitely Mm -hmm. gave me that like that shift of mindset that I'm like all right they're dealing with it right now they're a couple weeks ahead of us and it had 
implications of how I mm. kind of started to move forward in digesting all this material. Wow, that is a great example. It's it's hard and it's so serious and it's your friends and it's so personal. Um, but just seeing how, wow, yeah, just kind of seeing how like understanding and being able to communicate with other people and um, from other cultures, other countries in this case, um, yeah, like that can really be an, a valuable source of information for us. Um, and I think even translating that a little bit more into our clinical role as well, that it's not just about finding out the information that we need as clinicians that we can do an evaluation and we can document good information and we can, I mean, like you hear in like the we in this, um, it's about if, if we make it about us, that's, that's not, that's still not collaborative and that's still not productive. But I mean, you were just listening to your friends and you were trying to understand what was happening and you were hearing their perspectives before it was even relevant to you. Truly. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. As yeah. you said, I mean, and I think you're, I think you and I are not in the minority of of Americans by saying that we didn't think this is as big of a deal as it was until it it became real for us, right? Until it got here. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. So when you think about um, kind of your clinical practice a little bit more, um, can you kind of talk about times that you really felt like you were able to establish a really collaborative? Um, connection with a client or with their family uh, that really just enhanced the pro- the occupational therapy process, that really you felt like it was a win for that client and their family, that you guys were able to really navigate those differences together? So immediately what came to mind is this family that I used to work with, and it was a little boy that had Down syndrome, and both of his parents spoke Spanish. And the I would say the mom was primarily Spanish speaking. Dad spoke a little bit of English, but dad typically wasn't around during the sessions. And so luckily for me and for the family, we both we we both were open about hey, I I speak a little bit of Spanish, un poco, okay? Just a little <laughs> bit of Spanish. I can understand it okay. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert by any means, but I felt comfortable in trying to communicate with the mom. And we actually started where she would practice her, her English for me and I would practice my Spanish back. And mm-hmm. it was like this great way that we started to connect and we would laugh if we made a mistake. Like we just had this like complete openness and it didn't matter. Like there was no judgment in it. If I said something and she's like, I don't know, like that that is not a word. What are you trying to say? <laughs> there was no judgment there. And it really just added to the entire therapeutic process. And mind mm-hmm. you, I'm talking about me and the mom. I'm not even talking about the kid. And the kid is specifically <laughs> my client, right? Like right. the kid was understanding. He's probably sitting there just laughing at both of us. Like, I understand what you guys are both saying and you can't communicate. <laughs> and it was just this beautiful situation that I felt like added so much to what was going on. And that story will and, – and that experience – and this happened because I worked with that child for probably like two and a half years – That will be one that will just constantly stick with me of the beauty of maybe not understanding each other in the beginning, but we were able to work together and through, through communication and through just having this openness, we were really able to come together and, and start to understand each other. So, Mm. 
That's a really cool story. Um, also showing that it, it's not just language deep. Yeah. Right? That you really had to establish a relationship with them and an understanding. And um, if it was just language, I, you know, who knows how it would have ended up. But if you guys, you know, were really collaborating, collaborating well. I wonder um, if you've ever had to set goals differently based on um, just occupational differences that you – I don't, and I don't know what goal writing looks like in early intervention because I've never practiced in that area. So it, does goal writing look any different if somebody has um, like a cultural difference that impacts their family dynamics or their roles or their occupations, routines? Just throwing out all the OT words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, to answer that question, I wouldn't say that it's different because – each goal is going to be specific to that child. And so each goal is going to be different regardless, or I should say across the board from one child to the next, they're all going to be slightly different because they're so client centered. So I wouldn't say that I have to write them any differently because I'm already tailoring them to the child. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, no, it makes perfect (laughs) sense. Yeah. Um, And and then, yeah, I think there's some practice areas where maybe the goals aren't always client-centered or they are, but in sort of a, you know, they, they could be a little more client-centered, but it's just the nature of the constraints of a setting um, and of kind of what goals are therapists feel like they can get um, insurance coverage for. So I was just wondering kind of what that looked like in early intervention, but it sounds really client-centered, which is awesome. Oh yeah. I mean, we are <laughs> early intervention and, and specifically being in the homes. We are there with the families. We mm-hmm. are in their homes. We are with their families, their extended families, their friends, mm-hmm. their neighbors, their furniture, their materials. It, it, it is all about them. And so, yes, our goals and our treatments are extremely client-centered because, it, because of like we are there. And yeah. I also try to be as like minimalistic and like I guess you can call it bagless as possible. So I'm not trying to bring in a lot of materials. Mm-hmm. I am using what they have. That's so great. yeah, like trying to be occupation-based, client-centered. It's it's one of the it's one of the big benefits of working specifically in home health and specifically with early intervention, because a lot of times you get the you have to have the family involvement because I'm working with kids that are so young. So there's always going to mm-hmm. be a family member that's there. Yeah, I think that that highlighting the environment, um, the naturalistic environment for that client, which you know oftentimes is is within the home, um, mm-hmm. both for home health, like you mentioned, for adults or for early intervention. I think you're right that that really would help bridge some of these cultural gaps. Um, you can really kind of start to understand each other a little bit more and see kind of what you know. If, if I see you in the clinic. I don't know who you're going home to truly. I don't know kind of what environment you have set up and and pictures and videos are awesome. But I think just actually interacting with that person on their turf um, can also, you know, combat some of those issues that I I have noticed even just as an interpreter and as a therapist, uh, some of those issues where the client feels like the therapist is the expert or the doctor's the expert, and they must yield to them. I think that by – I mean, have you experienced that where being on their home turf Mm kind of helps even the playing field a little bit? Yeah. So I first actually got exposure to that expert, quote-unquote, way Mm -hmm. of thinking when I was in Ecuador. 
And it was the first time that I had gone down and I was volunteering at a pediatric outpatient clinic down there. And I remember like explaining something to a parent. And then the next session I was explaining something. And then I like throughout the day, I was explaining all these things and I was expecting to get a, to get a lot of questions back. And again, like this yep. goes back to expectations, expectations I had for the client, right? Mm-hmm. And I went and I talked to the basically like the manager, the the lady that the program director that started this whole thing. And I'm like, why aren't like, why aren't the parents asking me questions? Like for me, that shows like they're understanding, that they're engaged, that yeah. they're listening. Like I'm I again, I have all these like preconceived notions of what I think they should be doing. And she just stopped me and was like, they consider you the expert. If they if they ask a question, that means they are questioning what it is that you are saying in a negative tone, not in a mm-hmm. understanding type thing. And I just like stopped and I was like, wow, I had never thought about it in that lens before. So mm-hmm. that was, yeah, that was the first time that I experienced that like expert type thing. And it's, it's an interesting, I guess, reflection mm-hmm. and, and perspective to kind of take into that just because our patients and our clients aren't asking questions doesn't mean that they aren't understanding what it is mm-hmm. that we're telling them. Yeah. I think actually those kind of cultural differences of, and again, it's not a specific culture or country where these ideas are coming from. It's just this sort of general idea in, um, I think in healthcare where a lot of clients, regardless of their backgrounds, just kind of trust what we're saying. And it is such an important thing to understand, I think for us. And I constantly am reminding myself that if I say something, whether I want it to sound like an expert opinion or not, somebody might be perceiving it as an expert opinion. Mm -hmm. And I need to be conscious about what I'm saying, how I'm actually citing evidence, being clear when I'm being speculative speculative, or when I'm sort of talking out loud and thinking through a hypothesis of why something might be challenging. I mean, I feel like it's it's something that's so important for us to just keep keep track of and kind of have always in our brain that somebody might be perceiving us as experts, whether we want that or not. And we usually don't, right? Because <laughs> we don't want yeah. <laughs> We're not the expert for other people's lives, right? We're just working with them. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's actually uh, something that I really loved about interpreting them. And something that I just kind of want to put out there because I know a lot of um, practitioners work with interpreters to facilitate their sessions when they're available. Um, Something that I think was really cool about my interpreter training that I went through was it's not just about language. So there's, you can be a conduit of information and that's definitely what I think most people understand about interpreters, but they really emphasize this role of being a cultural broker. Mm -hmm. And I loved that part. It's a little goofy because when you talk outside of that conduit, um, you have to refer to yourself in the third person. That's what you're supposed to do as interpreters. It feels ridiculous, but it's really helpful to put to show like I'm putting my own self into this situation. I'm not speaking for the client. I'm speaking as an interpreter. So anyway, I, I do like it. It sounds a little goofy though in practice. But I think my favorite part was just seeing or being able to intervene when I saw maybe a doctor share information, a client not along. And have this look on their face that you could just tell they did not understand the words that I was interpreting through them. Not because I can't speak Spanish, but because the words were medically complex and I didn't necessarily know the definition. I just know what the word is in Spanish. You know what I mean? (laughs) And my favorite part was being able to jump in and say, hey, the interpreter would like to point out, um, I, I, you know, 
that I think this client needs some more clarification. Would you be willing to word that differently? I will interpret. Mm-hmm. And seeing their eyes open and, and oh, I understand, like n- nodding differently or, or like you said, actually asking a question. <laughs> and yeah. I just felt like that was such a victory because um, a lot of times those providers just had no idea that what they were saying didn't make sense. Um, and anyway, so that was kind of my favorite part was sort of being that cultural broker and identifying times when there was a clear disconnect and doing what I could to sort of bridge that. So, yeah, I, well, okay. I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of interpreters, but typically they are say like the case manager that's coming in to help interpret in the situation, but they are already Mm. supposed to be there for their role, but I've only worked with one interpreter that was specifically there to bridge the gap of communication between me mm. and the client. And that was such an interesting learning opportunity for me and I think for everybody that was involved because it's exactly what you just said. It wasn't just the language part, but it was also the kind of cultural and background understanding and bridging of that gap of like what what I'm trying to help communicate and educate the families on and how that can best then be applied to their culture given their situation and what's going on with them. And there were a lot of times that like I'd be explaining something and the interpreter would sit there and be like, hold on, give me a second. I need to figure out like I know how to interpret that word for word, Mm -hmm. but I need to figure out how to best convey that to make sure that it has the same meaning. And again, like I just I learned so much from that to to give the interpreter space and allow her to kind of digest what it was that I was saying, but then also try to insert the the culture piece into that to then provide that to the family. And I think a lot of times we as occupational therapy practitioners that we've been doing this for days, weeks, months, years, we like eat and sleep and breathe OT <laughs> and yes. OT terminology. And we'll throw out big words that other OT practitioners are going to understand, but our yeah. families aren't going to necessarily understand because it might be the first time they're hearing the word vestibular or proprioception right. or whatever it is. And so allowing, like, especially when you're going to be throwing out a big term, a very medically complex term that your family may or may not have heard before. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have either you're trying to translate yourself or you have a translator, sharing that information, pausing and then saying, hey, like, if there are questions, like, let's let's have a conversation about this yes. and not just, like, throwing it out there and then, like, walking away. Mm-hmm. I think that's – I'm so glad you had such a great interpreter. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I have worked with interpreters in when it's a language other than Spanish where I've been the practitioner and they've been the interpreter um, where that was not the case. And knowing what I know an interpreter should do, it's it's been frustrating. So I'm so glad to hear you had a positive experience where they actually really owned that cultural brokerage role and, and made sure mm-hmm. people were truly understood and not just – audibly heard. <laughs> yeah. And and that was only one. So I had a, a, at least one good, uh, good opportunity and experience. But yeah, I can see if you don't have somebody that is taking on that role, it can be even more difficult. Sure. And I think that too, that example you just gave, um, if, if a, someone listening is working with an interpreter who is not providing that more rich cultural brokerage, that is the client's right to have that service. And so it's totally appropriate. And I've had to do this with interpreters and say, 
can you please um, provide any cultural context that might be helpful for me to understand what this client is sharing with me? I really want to understand. And if you just tell them, like, I really want to understand this person's perspective and where they're coming from, most most interpreters sit up a little taller when you say that, put their phone away, and really own it because they do know. I, I speak from personal experience having seen that. Um, <laughs> Um, and so just kind of asking, hey, this is the role I really need you to play right now. Um, I think people really own that and it helps everybody for sure. Uh, one thing that I kind of learned working with this one interpreter was knowing that she was – she had a better understanding. She was more aware of the culture that the client was coming from because they were actually from very similar uh, areas, I believe – was I would watch how she would respond. And mm-hmm. so if if the family, for instance, they would offer gifts. After every session, they would offer gifts and it was gifts of food. And mm-hmm. the gifts would get bigger and bigger and bigger with each session because I think they became more comfortable with us oh, and wow. so they wanted to yeah. share their appreciation. And like I, I, I have my own kind of rules of how I go about that. But in this situation, because I had a translator there that was more familiar with the culture, I would watch and observe her and see how she navigated the situation mm-hmm. because she's also coming in from the professional role coming into this family. It's not a like a friend or anything like that. So I'd kind of sit back and watch how she navigated that Mm -hmm. and then be able to kind of apply my own lens to it too. And when I'd see that she was kind of hesitating, I'm like, it's okay that I hesitate with accepting Mm -hmm. or not accepting this gift and allowing, allowing us both to kind of have that space to learn together. And I think that was like the really, really big component of this whole thing. Yeah. I love that kind of observing and you can even ask, you know, right now, like, is there any expectation that maybe I'm not, I wouldn't be aware of? Right. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's a great example of, of sort of what cultural brokerage can look like. Um, something, I guess I've kind of a couple examples I want to share just for people who haven't had these experiences, just so they can have some more sort of visual, like what this might really look like in practice. Um, I was working with a family and this was as an interpreter, actually not as a therapist. Um, I was interpreting for a family, um, and it was the dad who brought in his young child um, who had a chronic disability, to be honest at this point. I don't remember specifically um, what their situation was, but I do know they were there because um, the child wasn't able to keep any food down, was having really bad like, reflux and other other issues. And so the doctor came in and said, so what do you do when you're feeding the child? Like, How do you feed them? And I was noticing the dad was giving really vague answers. And they weren't really – like I, I felt like there was something that he wasn't comfortable saying. And so he kept saying, you know, sort of really vague things like, oh, we just keep trying. We just we just try. We, we do that. And and so I, it would, I would interpret that. And then she would say, yeah, but like what do you do? And he would say, oh, well, I'll do whatever you, what you, whatever you say. We're open to suggestions. And she'd be like, okay, let me go. And I just kind of interrupted and I said, you know, again, like third person because it's so awkward. But <laughs> – like the interpreter would like to say that I, I think there's something that the client isn't sharing at this point. And if you ask some more probing questions, I think we might be able to figure out really what their need is. And she just kind of said, oh, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was missing something. Yes. Like, you know, let me ask them a bunch of questions. And because she was able to, re, you know, reaffirm and say, whatever you're doing, 
we're going to work with that. Like, what does your mealtime look like? She was asking such great OT, you know, questions. Um, <laughs> but she was asking, like, what does mealtime look like for you? Or what utensils are you using? Or is there something that you are uncomfortable with that's happening? We will not judge you. And once she was able to really articulate, like, we're not judging what you're doing. We're just trying to come up with better suggestions. This dad really opened up and was like playful with his kid now where the the whole time he was so kind of just sitting there nervously. He wasn't even being playful with his child that was in the room. And I had heard when they walked out saying something's weird here, like, you know, but instead of asking questions, they just kind of assumed something was being, was weird. And I was like, well, we can ask questions and figure out what's happening. Cause it's probably not this guy's weird. It's probably that there's a misunderstanding or a sort of like a power dynamic here that we're not intending. And once we explored it though, he was playful. He was, he was practicing the new suggestions with his child. The child was eating. I mean, it was so cool to see how just that little intervention of like, hmm, we should probably ask some more questions, like actually helped his family. So that's just one example of kind of what that can look like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think so. that just ties into there's more than just language, like being mm-hmm. able because you as the interpreter or the practitioner, you picked up on body language, you picked up on maybe a, a change in the eye shift or this <laughs> way that the that this the client and the family was acting that you were like, there's something going on. And mm-hmm it wasn't necessarily that language piece. There was something else that you had noticed. And so, yeah, there's, there's so many things that we as occupational therapy providers have to pay attention to when we are working with any client. Mm -hmm. This is not just somebody who has a different cultural identity than you. This is Mm -hmm. anybody that we're working with. And yeah, and we have to, we have to have an understanding of where we are, but also have an openness to try to understand where the client is coming from. And if you have students, if like like me, a fieldwork educator, if you're bringing students into the equation, what what are they bringing into that as well? And then how are mm-hmm. they feeling? So all of a sudden it opens up not just family practitioner. Now we have the students or the translator or like enter in anybody else that's in that situation. And I think this also can apply to being in the world of academia and having students within the classroom that are all coming from different cultural identities and cultural backgrounds. So it's really like this this all-encompassing mm-hmm. thing that we really just have to be consider it and and be aware of. As we're going through this, we can sort of create some red flags for ourselves. Like when should we really stop and have those moments of reflection even Mm mid-session? And I think for one of them is like be wary of silence or nods like we've been talking about. (laughs) Like be wary when your interaction, even if you have an interpreter or even if you're trying to navigate those language barriers, like if your interactions don't feel like you're having a full conversation, like that should be a little bit of a red flag, right? (laughs) Oh yeah, maybe I maybe I'm missing something, and I should probably pause and figure out what I'm missing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and utilize other resources if you feel like you can't address it with your client mm-hmm. yourself. Utilize a translator or utilize somebody like I will have uh, some of my students that might like going back to like speaking the language. I, if I feel like I can't communicate something in Spanish to a family, I'll have my students try to. Uh, try to communicate it to them or I'll have them call mm-hmm. them and, and talk to the family and then relay the information to me. Uh, and so it's it's really like kind of utilizing those different resources. Another thing that I've done is just using Google Translate. And you can actually, yeah. if you set it up to have access to your microphone, you can talk into it and it will spit out 
maybe it won't be the best, but you can somehow like convey your point. And so going back to the family that I was sharing the story about uh, with, with the language, if there was something that I was struggling to communicate, I would open up Google Translate on my phone, I would speak it, and then it would say it in Spanish to the mom. She would talk mm. back in Spanish and then it would it would say it in English to me. And that was like our our last like last ditch effort of like if we can't get it, we're going to try to see if we can get find a way to have each other understand. So utilizing mm-hmm. outside resources that can also help in the situation too. Sure. And I think that's a great segue into some other resources that maybe aren't language specific. I think you're right. I mean, Google Translate, it's it has its ups and its downs. But hey, when you're <laughs> in someone's home and you need to communicate with them and they need to communicate with you, I mean, it's a great resource. So I, that's cool yeah. to hear how you're able to use something that's free on your phone um, in sort of in a pinch and it really was effective. Yes. Um, and I think when we're talking about some of those situations that aren't linguistic, um, we feel like we can get through the situation a little easier because at least we're speaking the same language or at least something. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not responsible for really engaging with someone's full identity, including their cultural identities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to take this moment to point out um, a resource that AOTA provides um, for members, and it's an MDI uh, toolkit. Um, it's under the Multicultural Interest sections. It's Multicultural Diversity and Inclusion, by the way, since, you know, she probably define acronyms, um, MDI Network. But basically, there's all these groups of OTs that have particular cultural identities, and then they collaborate, have um, have their groups. Some of them are more like social groups. Some of them are more like task force kind of groups. And then they actually provide resources to OTA members about specific cultural groups. So you're getting the information from therapists who also identify in these uh, with these certain identities, which I feel like is a fantastic resource for us. Yeah. Um, I did not know that existed. So thank you. Learn something new yeah. every day. Yeah. You know, and I actually, I was clicking on one. So one thing, when I went to school in Maryland, um, I went to school near in, at Towson University in Baltimore. Um, and when I went there, uh, a population, a group of people I had never really like met before, or it was anyone who um, identified as Orthodox Jewish. And there's a really large Orthodox Jewish population in Baltimore. So I was like, all right, here's like a culture I'm really unfamiliar with. Like, let's navigate this one. And um, so they actually have a link here for the Orthodox Jewish Occupational Therapy um, Chaversa. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but OJOTC is their acronym. And it's just on the OTA website um, under the practice tab. Um, into the multicultural tab as well. And so um, it talks about like the mission, the goals, but then they actually have resources and they define some common terms that we might hear and that are very occupationally relevant. So I thought this was kind of a, a cool resource for me, especially as someone who, you know, was meeting a lot of other colleagues who identified as Orthodox Jewish. And I just had no idea what that really meant, um, to be honest. And I was able mm-hmm. to learn a little bit and start those conversations. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, I I really like that. And I also think, like, I think that's great for us to kind of take the time to digest that and learn about that. But also going back to like working with our clients, the clients Mm -hmm. are the experts in themselves. And (laughs) one of the strategies that I always try to do is ask questions, ask them. Mm -hmm. People like talking about themselves. And I don't mean that like in a bad way, like people just like talking about themselves. And so I will sit down and 
just like, again, no judgment. No, no, you're doing it wrong. It's different, whatever. That is not it. It is, I want to learn more. I am genuinely interested in what you are doing right now. I have families, again, like if I'm in the home, they're making meals. Meals Mm -hmm. can have a a huge cultural identity and kind of this cultural influence into what it is that they're cooking and, and how they're serving it and all that kind of stuff. And I'll just sit there and be like, it smells delicious. What are you making right now? And that Mm -hmm. gets them to start to open up about what it is that they're making, why they're making, who's coming over to enjoy that meal with them. Uh, The other thing about working in the homes is when holidays happen, you are there. You are seeing Mm -hmm. the families participate in their cultural traditions for these holidays. And I'm not an expert in every single cultural holiday, but I'll sit there and be like, what is the significance of this? Like, I want to know more about that. Sure. Tell me, share, open up with me. And I think a lot of times when I show a genuine interest that's coming from my heart of wanting to Mm -hmm. learn, the families then are like, oh, wow, like, that's really cool. You're you're not yes. judging me. Yes, let me tell you about this because this is very, this is really important for me. So it, it's utilizing mm-hmm. our outside outside resources, but then also just utilizing our clients and asking right. them the questions too. And I think it's really cool the way you started those conversations of asking like, what are you cooking? Who's coming over to your home? You're not asking them to be representatives of an entire cultural group right? Because that's where this goes wrong, right? Like we mm-hmm. need to be responsible. I think there's actually a term like responsible questions is what in within the cultural, like what are responsible questions to be asking? And what you just said were great examples. Like I'm not asking you to represent the entire like Orthodox Jewish population. I'll just use that example. I'm just asking like, what are you doing in your home? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you do with your family? Um, mm-hmm. What's important to you? And like, those are really responsible questions because we want to make sure, and especially coming from my position of like a white female, like I, like I with maybe without like the same like religious or um, like ethnic backgrounds as someone else, like I can't come to be like, hi, can you please tell me what it's like to be a Hispanic man? I need to know that right now. Like, no, like that's not that's not a question I can ask, right? Mm-hmm. And I only say that as an example, just of like that sounds so wrong. Like, that's not a question I should expect someone else to be able to answer. I need I want to get to know my client. So if my client happens to be someone who identifies as Hispanic and a man, I'm still going to ask them the same questions about like, what do you do on a typical day? What's important for you? Who do you live with? And how does that impact your daily functioning? What are barriers you're experiencing to doing things that are meaningful to you? Like, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like those are responsible questions. Um, and I think just being really sensitive. <laughs> I just, I felt like the need to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think too, like I was kind of talking about asking uh, asking questions to our clients, but also sharing a little bit about us too. And oh, yeah. it, it really shows that reciprocity of mm, communication, mm-hmm. of understanding, of awareness, and like that, that I'm here and I'm going to share a little bit about me. Yes, you can keep that professional boundary and there sure. there can be things in place. But sharing specifically like going back to talking about holidays, if it's a holiday mm-hmm. that you also participate in or maybe you do something different, it's like, oh, that's so cool that you do it that way. Let me tell you a little bit about how I do. Like I, I do almost the same thing, but I have this little variation. Mm-hmm. And it just goes back into connecting and, and establishing that sure. trust and understanding with our clients, but, but based both on them, but also us. Yeah. And finding that common ground um, because there always is common ground, right? 
And so mm-hmm. even when we we feel like we're having all these conversations where we're like learning so much about them and, and uh, maybe they're even just learning so much about us and we feel like there's so many differences, finding that connection, like you're saying, and that common ground of like, hey, we do things differently, but you know, I also have like, even if it's a holiday, like you were saying, that's not something that you celebrate like, yeah, but I have this really meaningful holiday. And it sounds like we both find a lot of significance in bringing our family together to celebrate something that's just deeply rich in our lives. And and like just those connections, even though none of the superficial level things look the same, um, just like that human connection is what this is all about anyway. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I feel like so far in our conversation, we've talked about some times that um, kind of bridging some of these cultural gaps has been really fruitful and we've really made connections with other people and just how uh, cool it was to experience that from our perspective and how much we've grown. But um, it's not always so pretty and it doesn't always work out so nicely. Um, so I was wondering, I know it's hard sometimes to like even talk about these times when we feel like we, maybe we didn't quite um, meet our own expectations or when we felt like the situation just didn't allow for true connection. But are there times when when navigating these cultural differences has been not fruitful or has, um, yeah, just been even more challenging and you're not, you haven't necessarily seen the um, positive uh, outcome of it? Yeah, I had a, I had an experience and this was actually fairly recently where Again, like for myself, I felt very confident working with Spanish-speaking clients and being able to go in and and help out to the best of my ability. I've I've already been working with that family that I've talked about. Like I've had this positive relationship with them, and that's happened multiple times. So I I had this layer of confidence of even though I don't speak great Spanish, I can work with these families that are Hispanic and Latinx. So I I had this family, and I went in. And right in the beginning, I could tell that there was a hesitancy from the mom. And it was because I was not a native Spanish speaker and that I had limitations understanding the culture. But I, they, they agreed to the services right in the beginning. And I was only going in once a month. So it wasn't, it wasn't like something that was happening every single week or more, multiple mm-hmm. times a week. And then after a couple months, I get a message from the case manager and they're just basically like, hey, so-and-so, they are like going to terminate services with you. They really want to have somebody that is a native Spanish speaker coming into the house. And initially I was I was pretty sad about that because I felt like I had failed this family that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to connect with them and get them to understand that like, yes, I'm not perfect and I might not be exactly who you want, but I'm here. Like I'm here and I'm open and I want to be there and I want to help your child and I can help your child. But then uh, I ended up having more reflection about this experience and the implications that it actually ended up having on the child Mm -hmm. because the, the family, the child was unable to get serviced for many, many months because Mm -hmm. they could not find a provider that was a native Spanish speaker, even somebody that was just fluent in Spanish. And so a couple months later, the case manager called me back up and was like, hey, uh, they want to resume services because we weren't able to find somebody. And that was so hard for me because I had been there the whole time. I had time in my schedule and I was willing to work with them. And it was so unfortunate at such a critical time in this client's life that there was a gap in this service. And it was because of cultural differences. And it was because that the the family was was really trying to get 
what they thought they needed at the time. And that was a Mm -hmm. difficult situation for me to navigate professionally, but also just kind of personally and, and being, being not okay that they said that they didn't want me anymore. So it was, it was Mm -hmm. an interesting time for me to kind of figure that out. Yeah. And I think that also just highlights, um, just some of the downstream effects of kind of like what you said, just of, of like cultural difference and, and and that family advocating. They like they were actually advocating for what they needed and what they really wanted. And that's so admirable because not everybody feels confident enough to advocate. But then as a result, this child isn't getting services. And that just feels like systematically there's a problem. Um, and it also just highlights some of the occupational injustices that can come out of people not understanding each other or um, not having enough practitioners that are fluent in other languages, right? I think that's yeah. something that AOTA has been talking about for years now, really trying to improve kind of the diversity of our field because we um, we are stronger as a profession when we have lots of different perspectives and languages represented and backgrounds. And um, it's just unfortunate that that client wasn't able to get what they needed, even though there was a practitioner available and and you were, you were willing to help. Um, that's just a tough kind of like messy situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've learned a lot from it and Mm -hmm. and going through that. Like, so I think with a positive spin, what I've learned from it has been good. I, I wish that it didn't happen, but the, the, what I can do is actually to just take from that and then move forward. And if it happens again, make sure that I say something to the case, to the case manager of like, Hey, you should educate the family that this could cause a delay in service or a lapse in service, or this might not be as easy as possible. Cause they might've just thought that they'd be able to call up somebody else. And the next day, another therapist is coming in, but all, all of us are just completely swamped. So even to find a provider that had availability and then to, to have all these other like technicalities, like qualifications or whatever on top of it, just, it was just, made it even harder. Right. And that's probably something the family just didn't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so then they advocate for themselves, but end up sort of missing, missing this major piece of information that would have been so crucial for them. Yeah. I think that's a great, um, a learning experience for, for you for sure. And for hopefully the people listening to hopefully, uh, prevent something like that from happening. So I appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> um, and we kind of mentioned that occupational injustice, uh, and I just want to define that because I know it's a term we use a lot, but sometimes it's not always understood. And since we're all about understanding and connection this episode, I'm going to just define it. Um, And for people who are not quite familiar with it, it's this concept that really stemmed out of a social justice perspective by Wilcock and Hawking and Townsend. And there's a lot of writing about occupational justice and injustice, but this injustice, I'm actually just going to read the definition because they said it best. Um, (laughs) But it really refers to this ongoing deprivation or it can be just patterns of disruption. And I think what you were just describing kind of fits into those patterns of disruption where this cycle of the, or this person's um, therapy was interrupted. And this probably isn't the only thing in this child's care that has been interrupted because the system wasn't ready to provide what they needed or there weren't enough therapists or you know whatever in this case. Um, but it jeopardizes, in this case, it's talking about children, but it can jeopardize children's development. It can create much larger health issues and it can actually have lifespan implications. And when I first read that, it just sort of the gravity of it just kind of settled in me a little bit. Like, wow, an occupational injustice or, or just a slight decrease in access to care can have like that butterfly effect on the line of 
you know, what happens in early intervention um, really sets up the child for elementary school. And then what's happening in elementary school sets them up for next steps. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, 30 and don't have a job yet. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm amplifying mm-hmm. this, but there's like these little things that, that feel minor are kind of have a huge significance for these people's lives. Yeah, I I actually I interviewed a guest and this was like right in the beginning of my podcast mm-hmm. and she started talking about uh she's really big into gardening and mm. pretty much like the implications of gardening on health and well-being. Cool. And she started talking about the social injustice of this and the occupational injustice of just access to healthy foods, mm-hmm. fresh foods. And that in a, in a lot of neighborhoods, there tend to be a lot of fast food places and not a lot of just healthy, organic fruits and vegetables, and that those also tend to be more expensive. So from a global health care and, and health and wellness perspective, just the yep. access to what type of foods and how that can have implications across the board. And so, yeah, like there's so many, there's so many things that we might consider as small, but they can have huge implications across the board for health and wellness. Yeah, I think that just gives a lot more um, importance and just really shows the importance of um, making sure these communication patterns in our own practice are just really client-focused and collaborative because now we can kind of see that this has implications beyond your hour-long session um, Mm -hmm. or beyond your treatment plan for this person. Um, And so I think we have a really unique role, as we kind of said in the beginning, as occupational therapy practitioners. Um, we, we understand the value of culture and how that impacts occupation. Um, and so we can really use that to promote overall health for the people that we work with. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's it huge. is. So uh, as we close out, Sarah, is there any other piece of advice you would have? I know a lot of students listen and going into field work, particularly in a new setting with a new clinical population. It's just all new experience. And then on top of that, sometimes we also need to navigate these cultural differences. Any just pieces of advice for field work students that we can take away? I think the big thing is just having an open line of communication with your supervisor as well as with the clients, but establishing that early on and having the supervisor, and this is something that I always try to do, is really just try to explain and and set the expectations for my students from day zero, like before Mm -hmm. I even... Before they even start with me, I'll have this like pre-interview process and I lay out anything that I possibly can that the student might be exposed to. And whether that is having to do with like daily routines and ever-changing schedules, whether it does tie into cultural cultural stuff that's going on, what it actually looks like to be working in the houses, uh, spending a lot of time in the car. Like I lay out everything for my student and then... Mm. Then right before a session, if there are specific things that I feel like I should highlight to them, communicate that to them about, hey, like this is something as simple as taking off your shoes. Mm -hmm. Many families don't even want you to walk in their house with shoes on. And so prepping my student, we're going to be taking off our shoes at the front door or we do it over here. And then like so they can learn to navigate it themselves. But then also Mm -hmm. keeping in mind that we can't prep them for everything. And so there are going to be things that happen during the session that 
we didn't even expect. And so then also taking time afterwards to debrief with them and let them ask questions and and work through it, especially if it's something that's different or they haven't had exposure with too. So it's being prepared, but then also having that time to reflect and talk about mm-hmm. it too. That's great advice. I think too, that just applies to any, I mean, you can never plan ahead for everything in a session. And once you're a practitioner, you really know that. A lot of times plan A just doesn't happen and you just kind of roll with it. But as a student, it's like you're often committed to plan A. Um, and when anything kind of derails that, it can be really hard. So I think your your advice even of just, you know, you, you can't plan for everything and it's, it's going to be okay if you encounter a new situation, use the tools you have. Um, and just like, I think all that we've been talking about during this episode of, you know, be open to asking those responsible questions, um, work with your client. Don't feel like you need to know everything. I think that's, that's really helpful encouragement that sometimes I still need. So I think it's really probably helpful for people listening to. <laughs> I think we all need to be reminded of it. We all need it. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> just a good <laughs> constant thing to reflect on. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. While we were talking today, what were you drinking? Ooh, yes. <laughs> so I have been enjoying a Okay, actually I should start by saying that I am definitely a beer girl over here. So <laughs> I enjoy a good glass of wine, but my preference definitely aligns with beer. <laughs> so with that being said, That's okay. We'll forgive you for that. <laughs> you won't judge me, right? <laughs> I won't judge you. I love a good beer too. <laughs> okay. So I have been enjoying a barrel-aged peach sour ale. And this oh. I got from – it's called Bow and Arrow Brewing Company in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm. And like I had mentioned, I just got back from a trip, and part of that involved a road trip. And a lot of what my husband and I were doing were stopping at different breweries across the U.S. And so this was one of the places that we stopped at, and it is a delicious sour – beer with a little hint of peachness to it. And it's, it's amazing. It's very good. Do you tend to like sour beers or is this just sort of like a, you're branching out a little bit? So to be honest with you, I am an IPA person, like IPA all day. I love hazy IPAs, (laughs) New England IPAs, like that's my jam, but I don't discriminate to other beers and you can't, (laughs) I can't just always drink IPAs. So sure. I, I think over like the last year, I've taken on a little bit more of an appreciation for some of the sours just to kind of switch it up a little bit. But I enjoy having a good stout or like, yeah, I'm even though I have my preferences, I will I will drink most beers as long as they're good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good disclaimer on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the wine I was actually drinking today um, was provided by um, one of my previous guests, Kathleen Davidson. So shout out to Kathleen for providing the wine for this episode. Uh, it's a rosé, which is also not within my general scope. I tend to be like kind of a dry red. Cab Sauv is kind of my comfort zone. But recently, I've actually been enjoying rosés more as long as they're dry. I, th- I think that in, in the past, I've really only ever had really sweet ones, and I'm not a sweet wine person. Um, but this one was good. It was it was quite dry, um, but still had some good like fruity flavors to it. There was like some strawberry, actually some peach as well. Look, we, we didn't even coordinate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think so this one's um, called Coqueluche, and it's a 2018 
um, rosé and it's from France. Um, I think truly this wine's like best feature though is that it's a great value. Um, it's one of those ones at Trader Joe's that you just can't believe you're getting it at such a great value considering the flavor is really good as well. So if anyone's interested in a dry rosé, I would recommend this. I'm branching out a little bit too out of my comfort zone. I think that's why this one didn't relate to my uh, theme at all this time. Typically the wine relates. This one doesn't. Um, But now now that I'm I'm hearing it, I'm talking about it, I think it's out of my comfort zone, right? Things that are out of my comfort zone and stretch me. Is is Mm -hmm. that too much of a stretch? Mm -hmm. No, no. I I think that fits right in with what we discussed today. We did it. (laughs) Um, So then before we wrap up, Sarah – I like to ask if people have any book recommendations. And I know you said you're not huge into reading. Yeah. So I had to, I had to think about this for a minute. <laughs> Being you knew I was going to ask it. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, hush, I, I know that I need to read more. It's just it, – it's not my preferred way of like engaging with content. So sure. – uh, but – if I had to pick anything, I mm-hmm. am a huge fan of Lisa Genova. And – Oh, yes. Yeah. And – pretty much anything that she's written before. I think my favorite would be still Alice, but I've read mm-hmm. I've read a bunch of, of her other works and I actually was able to meet her. So she did <gasps> Breakfast with a Scholar at AO, at the AOTA conference every year. They have they call it Breakfast with a Scholar and they bring in some sort of distinguished author. And this was actually the very first AOTA conference that I went to. And I had been reading her book and I had felt like fell in love with her book. And I was like, what are the odds? Like, I have to go. I don't even know what this Breakfast of the Scholar thing is. So I showed up. She did a brilliant presentation slash chat with the people that were in the room. And then afterwards, there was like a little like meet and greet. And I just went up to her and I was like, thank you. I absolutely love this book. Like, this has made me want to get back into reading. And it was, yeah, just like she's awesome and then I love the books that are kind of talking about the dis- disability perspective mm-hmm. and so anything by her <laughs> yeah and you know what's cool about her writing is I feel like she really does um she does justice when she's talking about these conditions like she really gathers her research well um mm-hmm. not just from the medical standpoint but from lived experience um, and I think that's a really hard thing to execute um, when you don't have – it's not your personal experience that you're sharing, but you're creating um, fiction from very real experiences that other people have had. So I would totally agree. She's a very gifted author, and her writing is um, just very enriching as well. Yeah. I actually, I think already on the OT, Uncorked Book Club, we have um, one of her books, Left Neglected. I think that's mm-hmm. when I added. It's really good. Yeah. So. I haven't read that one yet. I just finished, well, just a couple months ago, I finished Love, <laughs> Anthony, and okay. I did uh, Inside the O'Briens as well. But Left Neglected is, I think, next on my list. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on this episode. And you've given uh, a lot of really good perspectives, and hopefully this will help us all just be a little bit more um, culturally fluid and culturally aware and all that good stuff as we continue to try to provide great care. Thank you, Miranda. This was awesome. And I'm honored to be on your show. And yeah, yeah, this was super fun. Great. Last thing, how can people reach you? Ah, yeah. So you can reach me through my website. It's otforlife.com. That's 
O-T, the number four, L-Y-F-E dot com. <laughs> and I have to throw out the cheese here because it is super cheesy, but people are like, why is life spelled with a Y? And <laughs> it's because <laughs> occupational therapy is the Y of life. I know it's super cheesy, it's, but that's it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason. Uh, you can also, you can find my OT for Life podcast or the OT Roundtable podcast that I was talking about earlier. You can find that on any of your favorite podcast players or YouTube. I also hang out on Instagram or Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. So you can pretty much find me anywhere. I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. I loved talking with Sarah about culture and reflecting on the joy of meeting and getting to know people with different cultural and life experiences. We are all better therapists when we can reflect on our own cultural identities and see the strength of cultural exchanges in our practice. If you like OT Uncorked, would you be willing to review it on your podcast player? That really helps other people looking for OT content find us. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with the handle at OTUncorked or on our website, OTUncorked.com. Have you thought about starting your own podcast? Record and upload your audio to Transistor. Transistor is a hosting platform that helps you organize your content, distribute it to all the major podcast players, and analyze your reach. I use Transistor to host OT Uncorked and find their website easy to use and their services affordable. Use the referral link in the show notes to get started. Cheers. Cheers.